Hey everyone, my name is Randall Heyer and I'm the worship arts pastor here at Cochrane Alliance Church. We are so glad that you've come to check out the latest sermon and we pray that you are encouraged, challenged, and ultimately that you are drawn closer to Jesus. Enjoy. Let me uh, begin with a word of prayer and then we'll come into the, the message. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we are able to come into this space together to worship you, to pray together, to study scripture together, um, to sing uh, songs of praise to your great name, to be reminded of who you are and what you have done. And I ask as we come into your scripture today, Holy Spirit, that you would do uh, what you were sent to do, that we would receive uh, your ministry, that you would lead us into all truth, that you would remind us of what Jesus has said, and that you would make Jesus glorified in our hearts and minds. And so we ask that uh, you would move powerfully amongst us, uh, as you always do, but I pray that if there's a, anything that would hinder or block your movement, that in this space uh, it wouldn't be there, that we would receive all that we want and all that you have for us. And we pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. In a sermon a few months ago, I can't remember how long ago it was, I don't remember what sermon it was, but I do remember I said that I, that's kind of how sermons go, right? Like, I don't know what you said, I don't remember when it was, but you said that one thing, I think it was something like this. Anyways, so I know I remember saying that I believe the Christian faith is logical, reasonable, rooted in historical fact, rooted in eyewitness accounts, and it is a, a very robust, uh, logical faith. But I also said there's undeniably an element of our faith that in a modernist science, kind of sciences rules everything worldview uh, hits us as a little bit weird. And I said that if we're to fully embrace the Christian life, we can't be afraid of the weird stuff. In fact, we need to embrace the weird stuff. And when I say weird stuff, I'm mostly just referring to our spiritual worldview that we must have as followers of Jesus. I mean, as soon as you say you believe that Jesus died and rose again, you've engaged in saying something that sounds very weird and shocking. As soon as you say that Jesus was born of a virgin, you're saying that something that's very weird and shocking. So let's fully embrace the spiritual, biblical worldview that we have as followers of Jesus. I say all that because today we're going to jump into an aspect of our spiritual worldview that I touched on really briefly last week. We're going to talk for a little bit here about the heavenly or the spiritual realm. And in scripture, we see that our physical, natural world often interacts with and, and overlaps with what we refer to as the spiritual world. The spiritual world and our natural world can and do overlap. So last week, you'll remember that Paul mentioned the ruler of the power of the air, the devil, as one of the external forces of evil working against humanity. And we said in keeping with Paul, Paul's cosmology, his kind of view of how all this works, this authority of the air is a spiritual domain. It's somehow part of the heavenly realms that interacts with the human world. 
So we see in, in Paul's worldview and our, then our worldview is that there is this ability for spiritual beings to exist in and operate in our physical world, even though they're spiritual beings. They, they have some ability to interact with us and, and be in this, this natural world. Indeed, even humanity is described as being both physical and spiritual beings. We have a physical body, but we're also told we have a soul. But if you were to do an autopsy on somebody, you couldn't pull the soul out. So what is the soul? The soul is the spiritual component of us that is intangible and, and often not seen, but we, we deeply know that we have this. And so what we, and then as, as Christians, we believe the very presence of God, the Holy Spirit, also dwells within us somehow. So what scripture is painting is this picture that we, we now inhabit uh, two worlds, the natural and the spiritual. And on some occasions, while on this natural earth, humans have been given glimpses into the spiritual realm that overlaps and interacts with the natural. Let's just look at a story from the Apostle Paul's life. He says, I will reluctantly tell about visions and revelations from the Lord. I was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether I was in my body or out of my body, I don't know. Only God knows. Yes, only God knows whether I was in my body or outside my body. But I do know that I was caught up to paradise and heard things so astounding that they cannot be expressed in words, things no human is allowed to tell. That's weird. Right? You read that, I was like, I don't know what that means. I don't think Paul fully knows what that means. But what are we supposed to make of that? Like, what does he mean? And I think by third heaven, he's referring to the spiritual realm that exists in the heavenly places. Paul seems to have entered into this place where spiritual bodies exist. And Paul's having this experience, and even as he's describing it, uh, he's like, was I there in my body? I don't know. He says it twice. He goes, I don't know. Was, was I there in my body? Was I there in the spirit? Was I, I don't, it felt very real. It wasn't just a vision, but I don't really know what, how this all worked. He really just felt present in this third heaven, this paradise, and he's, he has this experience that's hard to fully describe. And, and although occurrences like the one Paul describes here are rare, there's other examples in Scripture of people being able to see into the spiritual realm. I'm reminded of Elisha's servant. Uh, I think it's in 2 Kings when they're in a city that becomes surrounded by an enemy. And the servant goes, well, that's it. We're dead. We'll never survive this attack. And Elisha prays for his servant's eyes to be opened. The servant's eyes are opened. I mean, his eyes are already open, right? He sees this army, but all of a sudden he sees an angelic army that far outnumbers the enemy. And then Elisha prays that that army would go blind and they're struck blind by the spiritual forces arrayed around them. Another example is the Canadian minister, Henry Aline. He was nicknamed the Whitfield of Nova Scotia. If you know George Whitfield, great evangelist. Uh, Henry is less well-known because he was just in a smaller location, but he did great work in Nova Scotia. But he, he writes about an intense spiritual experience in 1775, and he had this experience while he was reading in the Psalms. And he wrote this in his journal. He said, My whole soul was filled with love, Ravished with divine ecstasy beyond any doubt or fear, for I enjoyed heaven on earth, and it seems that I was wrapped up in God, that he had done 10,000 times more for me than I could ever expect or had ever thought of, and I was obligated to cry out, enough, enough, O blessed God, 
because this experience was so overwhelmingly intense, this experience that he terms as somehow heaven on earth, the very presence of God in his space. And I bring all of this up today, as mysterious as it all is, because as we continue in our study of Ephesians chapter 2, we're coming to a really amazing, yet very mysterious statement that Paul makes. So last week we saw that through Christ we are made alive. We are reconnected to the source of life, to God our Father, through the forgiveness of our sin, through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit who regenerates us and makes us alive in Christ. And then Paul continues. So we're going to come into Ephesians chapter 2 and we're going to move into verse 6 here. He says, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms and in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So what we see is there's three things that happen when we're saved by grace through faith. When we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he was raised from the dead, three things happen. We are made alive in Christ, we are raised up with Christ, and we are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And all of these things are spiritual in nature. Because what is it to say, I've been made alive in Christ? Well, someone who doesn't know what you're talking about goes, well, you weren't dead. Like, what do you mean you're made alive in Christ? You were clearly alive. So what he's referring to is a spiritual awakening, a spiritual life that becomes uh, born in us through the spirit and through faith. And we're raised with Christ, and then we're seated with Christ. All of these things are spiritual in nature, and they come to complete fulfillment in eternity, but they are somewhat realized right here, right now, in this natural body. And I want to linger on this phrase that Paul uses, that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. And I think a lot of times people breeze over this because they're not really quite sure what to make of that. What does that mean? We're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Or you make the assumption That Paul means, oh, when this earthly life is over, then we will be seated with Christ. And verse 7 sort of seems to imply that, that we, we would read it as a future reading, that one day our position will be seated with Christ. But that actually doesn't really flow in the grammatical and flow of thought thing that Paul's doing here. So it's best to read verse 7 not as a statement of what will happen in the future, we will be seated with Christ, but to read it as a purpose statement. Why will we be seated with Christ? Or why are we made alive? Why are we raised up? Why are we seated with Christ right now? Well, so that in the ages to come, he might show the riches of his grace. Commentator Constantine Campbell points out that the, the really the only way to read these three actions, being made alive, being raised, and being seated with Christ in the proper grammatical context and flow of thought, is to read them as something that occurs the moment we believe and are united with Christ. We are right now. If you have professed faith in Christ, then you are right now made alive with Christ, raised up with Christ, and seated with Christ. And the ages to come will confirm all this to be true. And we will look back, and the, and the Father will point to us and say, look at my, at my grace and my mercy, and we will praise the Father in heaven and say, look at his grace and his mercy. So the question is, here's the question. Because as soon as I read this, I, I have a question. How can believers now be seated in the heavens while clearly existing here on earth? Constantine Campbell writes this. He says, easy interpretive options such as reading this as a metaphorical or hyperbolic reading should be ruled out. Paul's insistence 
On the believer's union with Christ speaks to something real, even if that reality can only be perceived in a spiritual sense. If believers are truly made alive with Christ, then they are also truly raised up and seated with him in the heavens. Now, part of the difficulty in understanding this is related to how we perceive this idea of the heavens. If the heavens are simply up there and we are down here, well, the tension then is very obvious because we're clearly not up there, we're clearly down here. But it might be more helpful to understand the heavens. We're going to get a little science fiction-y here, but I think this is the only way to do it. Uh, The best way to understand the heavens is as an alternate dimension that coexists alongside our own. This spiritual domain is where the Holy Spirit comes from and then dwells amongst us. Likewise, the ruler of the power of the air, Satan, is able to interact amongst us. There is this overlap of the natural and the spiritual. In similar fashion, people who are joined to Christ have crossed over into that alternate spiritual dimension. We, we haven't left our current natural place But like the Spirit, we have mysteriously become cross-dimensional beings through our union with Christ. He is seated in the heavens, and so we are there with him spiritually while maintaining our physical presence here. And again, this all tracks with this idea of being made alive in Christ. Like, well, I am alive, but somehow through the Holy Spirit, through profession of faith, I have become spiritually alive. That's why when scriptures declare that we're a temple of the Holy Spirit, And that when we join together as the church body, uh, we are literally the dwelling place of the Most High God. And again, I think sometimes we read that as flowery language or as symbolic language, but Paul means it very literally. Because of the presence of the Holy Spirit who indwells each one of us, because we are living stones in the spiritual temple, when we gather together like this, we create a dwelling place for the Lord Most High. In the... In the days of Israel, the Lord chose to dwell amongst his people in the Holy of Holies. And the reason that was the Holy of Holies is because that's where heaven was meeting earth. And it was in the tabernacle, and it was in the temple, and then Jesus comes and heaven is meeting earth in the incarnated form of Christ. Jesus is the temple. John says he came and dwelt among us, but the word he uses is he came and tabernacled amongst us. Jesus is the tabernacle, the holy of holies, the the presence of God on earth. And then Paul goes on and he says, you now are the temple the dwelling place, and heaven overlaps. That's super weird. I don't even feel comfortable talking about it. But that's what scripture says. And, and I, I almost wish it didn't because I'm like, I'm a pretty logical, rational person. I wish, you know, here's our list and here's what we do and that makes me more comfortable. This is mysterious. It's hard to grasp. It's, it's hard to understand, but it's, it's what scripture leads us to believe. So what does this all mean for us. Let's go back to a section in Ephesians chapter 1 that I actually skipped over. It's at the end of chapter 1. Paul has a prayer and he writes this, I also pray that you will understand the incredible greatness of God's power for us who believe in him. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. So Paul wants us to understand this power we have in Christ because the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at God's right hand now lives in us. 
That's an incredible thing to believe. Scripture tells us that it is true. Then Paul goes on to describe what it means that Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. He says, now he, that's Jesus, is far above any ruler or authority or power or leader or anything else, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. God has put all things under the authority of Christ and has made him head over all things for the benefit of the church. And the church is his body. It is made full and complete by Christ who fills all things everywhere with himself. So Paul tells us this amazing truth that Jesus is above all rulers and authorities, both natural and spiritual. He is above the ruler of the power of the air. And Paul says, I want you to know that you have this incredibly great power. The same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father is now in you. And then Paul goes one step further in our text today. Paul says, Not only do you have that same great power, but you also are seated with Christ. And where is Christ seated? He is seated above all rulers, powers, and authorities, meaning spiritually we are there with him. Maybe it helps us to understand the context of the the believers in Ephesus, the context of this prayer. Why is Paul praying this? What we know about Ephesus is that people in Ephesus were very aware of the power of spiritual things. Ephesus and the area around Ephesus, uh, even though all the Roman Empire was steeped in kind of magic and the occult and temples to gods and goddesses, Ephesus was even more so because of the cult of Artemis. The the Artemis cult in Ephesus had great uh, power across the Roman Empire. And so many of the people in Ephesus, they, they were soaked in magic and in the occult. This was a society that put curses and incantations on stone tablets around the city so that as you were walking around the city, you might come across an inscription and it would tell you how to summon a certain familiar spirit so that you could tell that familiar spirit to go and do your bidding. So you can actually find inscriptions written in stone of this is how you would summon the spirit of whatever to do this thing. And what we know is that many of the believers in Ephesus had, former, had engaged in occultic magic and the manipulation of the spirit world. See Acts 19. When the seven sons of Sceva are beaten up uh, by the demonized man, it says that the believers were much afraid and they brought their scrolls of magic and burnt them. So this was a culture that, that was invested in spiritual power, the spiritual realm. They really uh, pushed in and, and really they knew there was power in the spiritual realm but they often would feel oppressed and powerless by the powers that were out there. So Paul is telling them, listen, you might feel oppressed and you might know of the spiritual powers that are at work, but let me tell you something. There is a greater power than any you've ever known, Jesus. And he's for you and he's on your side. And not only that, the same power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him with the Father, that same power is in you. And not only that, but you are seated with Christ in the heavenly realms where everything is under the feet of Christ. So you do not have to fear Artemis and you don't have to fear the familiar spirit and you don't have to fear the the demonized man who beat up the seven sons of Sceva because not only do you have power within, but you are seated with Christ above all of it. That's why he prays this. They need to know this. And through our position with Christ, there is victory over spiritual powers and there is victory over sin. It's a battle, but the power to overcome sin comes from our position in Christ and the dwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. You are not defeated by your sin. That is true in the heavenly realms and in the spiritual realm, and then we live that out practically. Paul puts it like this when he writes to the church in Corinth. He says, but thank God 
He gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. So, my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing that you do for the Lord is ever useless. We can have victory over sin through Christ. Sometimes it's a process. Sometimes it takes time. But we find that sin patterns that formerly bound us are, are being broken by the power of Christ. And ultimately, we have assurance of an eternal life where sin will be fully and completely dealt with. I remember when I worked at the Mustard Seed, and uh, I met some people who were very sincere in their faith, but they were also very much addicts. And they had a deep desire to not be addicts. And, and they would work at it. And sometimes they would overcome, and sometimes they would overdose, and sometimes they would die. And I am convinced that those who were seeking uh, victory of, over sin through Christ, if they died with a needle in their arm, are in heaven rejoicing that sin has finally been defeated. It's beautiful. We always have victory. We always have victory. And so we can have this victory. And we also have victory over the ruler of the power of the air and those beings which seek to keep us in bondage. As participants with Christ in his heavenly position, believers partake in his royal rule over competing spiritual powers. Sometimes I meet Christians who are, uh, they kind of elevate the power of the enemy, the power of the darkness, the power of, of, uh, of evil spiritual beings as going, oh, it's a real, a real battle here. I'm going, no, you're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. The victory is won. He has no claim on you. If we are in Christ, we are citizens of heaven. We are a royal priesthood who can show others the goodness of God. For he called us out of darkness and into the light. We are now representatives of the kingdom, doing the work of the kingdom because we are seated with Christ. We're informed by Paul in our passage today that God expects what we do with our lives to reflect our new life in the kingdom. We're made alive, we're raised up, we're seated, we're given this incredibly great power, not just so we can sit around and talk about this incredibly great power. Paul then goes on in our text today as we pick up in verse 8. He says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So Paul makes it really clear here that no good work will earn us salvation, right? He says salvation is not a reward for the good things we've done. Salvation is not by works, but God does make us a new creation so we can do good things that God planned for us to do. But this work is not so that you can earn approval. God already approves of you once you put your faith in Jesus. Our identity in Christ is secure. We are chosen we are adopted, we are redeemed, we are forgiven. Before we do any good work or any good thing, we are secure in Christ. So we can say this, identity comes before destiny. Before you have done any good thing, before you have done any good work, in Christ you are secure. Because you are not saved by your works, but you are saved by grace through faith. But now that God has created you anew to do good works, well, we'll call that destiny. He has a plan for you. But if we don't get our identity in Christ first, we're going to serve for all the wrong reasons. We're going to get confused. We're going to get burnt out. We're going to get frustrated. So the work of God is important, but it's not the reason we are saved. Doing God's work is the fruit of salvation. It's not the root of it. We work from God's approval. We don't work for God's approval. He already likes you. 
You're his chosen and adopted child. In fact, you're his workmanship. You're his masterpiece. A piece of our identity in Christ is understanding that we are, as Paul puts it, we are God's workmanship. And the Greek word that we translate into workmanship is where we get our word for poem from. It's poema. And it refers to anything that is artistically made. So this could be literally translated as you are God's work of art. It's a word that speaks of something that's perfect and it carries the idea of rhythm and orderliness and beauty. But when I look at my life, I don't know about you, maybe you're you know, different than me, but when I look at my life, I don't necessarily see rhythm, orderliness, or beauty. And I can guarantee you that I don't see perfection. When we look at ourselves, we tend to see our flaws. We see so many things in us that need to change. But God says, you are my work of art. You are my poem. You are my masterwork. And I, I, I encourage people even to look at the, the places in their life where they feel they failed or where they haven't measured up. And I say, but God is, is making his brush strokes. He's, he's working. He's, he's saying, oh, look at this, this piece of darkness here, but look how I'm going to translate it into light. He's, he's the artist of your soul. Or as scripture might put it, he's the author and perfecter of your faith. He's saying, you're my masterwork. And because we are God's masterpiece, when we do the work that God has planned for us to do, we're showing the world what it looks like to be a new creation in Christ. We're letting the light of God shine through us as it demonstrates God's work in us. And that's what Jesus said to do, right? He said, let your light shine before others that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And we do these good works both through our natural abilities, our talents, and our passions, and also through the supernatural power as the Holy Spirit prompts us and empowers us to do so. Because the Apostle Paul says the kingdom of God is not just a lot of talk, it's living by God's power. And so being seated with Christ means we have that power to carry on the work of Christ's kingdom. And what is the work of God's kingdom? Well, Jesus models for for us what it looks like to do the work that God had planned for us. Working in God's kingdom means putting wrong things right both physically and spiritually. We do the work of God's kingdom in natural ways when we care for the poor and the sick and the hungry and the oppressed. And we do the work of God's kingdom in spiritual ways when we step out in faith and ask for miracles to demonstrate the power of the gospel, remembering that humans are both natural and spiritual. We inhabit both a natural and a spiritual world. And we need to operate in both those realms as Christ directs us. Both the natural and the spiritual need to be addressed because we are natural and spiritual beings. The church of Jesus is supposed to be carrying on the ministry that Jesus began in the Gospels. That's why Jesus says, As the Father sent me into the world, so I am sending you into the world. And in another place, Jesus says, Anyone, anyone who believes in me will do the work I have done and even greater things. And so for us to do the ministry of Jesus, we're going to need a power that is greater than what we possess in our own abilities. God knew that, and that's why God gave us that power through the infilling of his Holy Spirit in our hearts. We have the very power that raised Christ from the dead, and Paul prays, oh, I pray you would understand the great power given to you who believe. Today's uh, Pentecost Sunday, and it's the day that we celebrate this power that was given to us. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? Don't go anywhere until the Spirit comes, but once the Spirit comes, then go to the ends of the earth. Because we can't do it in our own power. But in the Spirit's power, we can do the commission that Jesus has sent us on. Let's just go to the Great Commission. Jesus came and he told his disciples, I've been given given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach the disciples to obey all all the commands I've given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
And so what we see here is Jesus somehow is, he says some things here that are actually a little bit strange. Like he says, I've been given all authority, so you now go. It's like, well, why would it matter that you have authority if you're sending us to go? So Jesus is linking this thing where he says, I've been given authority, so you need to go out. Essentially, Jesus is saying, because I have the authority over all things, you can now go and make disciples because, and he says that at the end, because I am with you always to the end of the age. And so we go out into the world with the authority that Jesus has given us through our union with him. This isn't to lord it over people or anything like that, but I think what it does is it, Sometimes I think there's a timidity. We're not really sure if we should step into the world with the gospel message. We're not really sure if we should step into the world and and make our light shine before others. But you go in the authority of Christ. He says, I have the authority. Go as my representatives. We talked about being sealed with the Holy Spirit. And one of the things that a seal was in that day was a mark of ownership. And sometimes when a servant had to go and and do his master's work, but they knew that there would be questions, uh, the servant would show the seal of his master. And he would say, look, my master has sealed this document. That means my word is, is going to happen. We're sealed with Christ by the Holy Spirit. And we go in our master's business when the authority and the power that he has given us. So just a few words on authority. We're not to seek spiritual power, but to seek the king first. And I know that we can become so enamored with the manifestations of the Holy Spirit that we miss the greater blessing, which is just God's intimate presence through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And so the authority and the power of the kingdom is not about performance, it's about stewardship. It's given to us not to prove anything, but simply to advance the kingdom of God as God directs in the Father's will. Remember that Jesus tells the 72 disciples not to rejoice in the power and in the authority that they were given, but to simply rejoice that their names are in heaven. Power and authority are not the goal. Knowing Jesus is the goal. Yet with that being said, we cannot dismiss the power and the spirit that's given to us. And we should not dismiss our responsibility to do the work of God. You are his authority. He's authorized you, he has deputized you to be his ambassadors and his priests in this world. We can accomplish many things in our own natural abilities and talents. But as I read through Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 this week, I was reminded, we cannot bend to the modernistic worldview, which is only naturalistic, which only operates in what we can see and feel with our bodies and our minds, but we also must hold fast to our spiritual worldview, because we are spiritual and physical beings ourselves. And at the end of the day, I don't really want to accomplish many things in my power and ability. I don't want to be able to point to something and say, look, I was so talented, I was able to create this. Who cares? I want, I want to see God do the unexplainable. I want to point to things and say, I don't know how this was accomplished except but by the power of God. That's a testimony. And I want to be able to say in some small way, like the Apostle Paul, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me in leading the Gentiles to obey God by what I have said and done, by the power of signs and wonders, through the power of the Spirit of God. So from Jerusalem all the way to Elycrium, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. And I think we can become hesitant to do all the good work that Christ has called us anew to do when we forget who we are in Christ. We are made alive raised up, seated with him over all things. Who then shall we fear? And we can be hesitant to do good works that we've been called to do when we forget that we've been given this incredibly great power, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And we can forget that we don't only operate in the natural, but we also operate in the spiritual. 
And I am far too often fixated on what I know that I can do in my own ability and power. But when I read the words of Paul, I am convicted that I need to recognize that I've been given spiritual gifts, spiritual power in the Holy Spirit, and a mandate from Jesus to go and do what he has done, making disciples, proclaiming the gospel, letting my light shine for all to see the goodness of my heavenly Father. So here's my challenge to myself and to all of us. Can we commit this week just to ask God what task he has for us? Because that's what scripture says. You've been created anew in Christ to do the work that he had called for you from long ago. So can we, we just ask, it might be something really simple, like taking a friend out for coffee who's been feeling lonely. Maybe it's making a meal for someone. Maybe it's volunteering with helping hands or with right hand support or helping at the food bank. Or maybe it's signing up to do a few shifts in the kids' ministry this summer. It might be a one-time task or an ongoing commitment. Or you might be challenged to step into that realm of the spiritual things, to intercede for someone in prayer, or to go and pray with someone in need of a supernatural encounter with the living God. Or maybe, as Paul tells the Corinthians, to earnestly desire the gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy, maybe God's saying, hey, I've been giving you a gift. Can you, can you walk in that gift? Can you, can you eagerly desire to use the gift I've been giving you? Maybe God's just calling you to be aware of the spiritual gift he's given you. And I just ask that you take the words of Paul seriously, that you are God's masterpiece, created anew in Christ to do the work planned for you from long ago. You are not a passive spectator in God's redeeming work, but an active participant, made alive and seated with Christ, filled with the incredibly great power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him at the right hand of the Father. God most definitely has a plan and a purpose for you. He's given you gifts supernatural power to accomplish this. I'm gonna call the worship team up and uh, just as they're coming up, I'm gonna do a final word. One of the things when I was writing this sermon is I, I thought to myself, I don't wanna make the distinction between the natural and the spiritual too distinct. Even things that seem to be simply natural things often have a spiritual component to them. Jesus says that feeding the hungry, caring for the sick, sheltering the homeless, all very natural things accomplished simply by being generous with time and money, they have spiritual and eternal ramifications. He says, when you feed that who is hungry, you are feeding me. When you reject those who are hungry, you are rejecting me. He says, there's a spiritual ramification to this. And many of the gifts of the Spirit seem to be more natural than supernatural. Gifts of hospitality, generosity, serving, encouraging, But because we're both natural and spiritual beings, we don't want to necessarily differentiate too much between the natural and the spiritual. Simply go and do what God has called you to do and trust that in all of it, the spiritual power of the Spirit and your position in the heavenly realms with Christ infuses all that you say and do with spiritual power to make your light shine in the darkness. I'll just give you a quick example. I don't know if you've ever been to someone's house who has the gift of hospitality. But it's like you go in there and, and it's like the most comfortable you've ever felt. And you feel like you can open up with them. And you feel like you can be vulnerable with them. And you feel their love and their encouragement for you. And really all they're doing is making you a cake. Right? It's just a really natural thing. But there's a, a spiritual infusion of power because it is a supernatural gift of the Spirit that their hospitality would advance the kingdom of God and encourage and equip the body of the believers. So when you do the work of the kingdom, Whatever that looks like and whatever the Spirit has gifted you to do, you do spiritual work. I just want to leave you with that. And let's push into that. Let's press into that. What is it that God is calling us to do as individuals for the body and for the community? Let me pray over you and then we'll worship. Holy Spirit, we are so grateful that you have been poured out upon all of us. 
And I pray, Holy Spirit, that we would not uh, diminish your role or that we would seek to quench or, or that we would do something that would be grievous to you, but that we would walk in the fullness of your presence that you would pour out your gifts upon us. And if there's uh, gifts that have been uh, dormant in this body, I pray that you would quicken them to life so that they may serve uh, one another and then go out into their community to make disciples who make disciples, to go everywhere and proclaim the gospel with word and with power. And so we pray this over our church. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you make your presence known? Would your gifts rise up? And ask, we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship together.